On today's show of the Silicon Valley podcast, we cover a topic that, well, to be honest, doesn't get the attention that it really needs, and that is the mental wellness of startup founders. Yes, there is a little attention here and there. Once in a while, you'll hear an article being spoken about, being shared. But to be honest, this is a major issue. On today's episode, we take some of the highlights from past guests where they brought up this topic and we compiled it into one amazing episode for you. And with that, I also want to say there is a lot happening with the show. I know I've been saying that for the last few weeks, but we got some big announcements coming up. All right, now let's start this episode, this very important episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. All right, enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Can you talk about that? How did you go about finding your manufacturer at the beginning? Were you just flying back and forth? What was that like? In my past, I've probably manufactured or overseen or purchased, I'm guessing, I don't know, half a billion dollars worth of nutritional products. But primarily those were supplements, dietary supplements, protein powders, shakes, some liquids. And that manufacturing was frequently in Asia, sometimes in Mexico, a little bit in the US and a little bit in Europe. But that was the most minority portion of it. So I had a bit of background in manufacturing. However, I'd never manufactured hardware before. And so the first thing, you know, you look back, many entrepreneurs have a tendency to believe that their strategy goes and executes according to plan and that they're brilliant and we're all rock stars. And that's just not the case. I mean, I, I think the case is that uh, there are many really brilliant entrepreneurs. There are some really important strategies that you put in place, but along the way, I think all of us that have experienced some degree of success, whatever the varying degrees are, have had some really wild strokes of great luck or good fortune that have come our way that have added grace to the equation and also some continuity. And so identifying our manufacturer was one of those. Literally, it started with Google searching. I wish I had a more interesting answer, but I mean, it was Google searching and then I'd be on Skype. And like all the Chinese I know is Ni Hao. And so I would, you know, Skype someone, I would Ni Hao them in China and Korea is on Yaseo. And then I would try to formulate a dialogue with people that were generally not very proficient in English to talk to them about manufacturing and how we might be able to manufacture and if they did OEM or ODM manufacturing. And so weeks and weeks and weeks were spent just doing online recon of where's water purification done where supply kind of aggregate, why does it aggregate there? What companies do this on a contract basis? And as I was doing all of that, I came across a trade organization called Aquatech. And it happened to be in Shanghai in 2013. I believe it was in June of 2013. And this is basically an aggregation of some of the world's leading suppliers around water purification, water technology, and water manufacturing. There are, I think there were about 100,000 people that attended this over a thousand different suppliers. And so I went there for three days and was at that convention for about 12 hours a day. And I was only one of the, the only Americans and white guys that were there. I mean, this is largely specific to the Asian kind of region, but particularly Shanghai as well. 
And I got an MBA in water and water manufacturing, water hardware through that experience. And I remember a lot of them, I would show them kind of the designs and the ideas and the pricing and the timeline. And there were more than a few of them. There'd be a little bit of translation back and forth. And I could hear the head of like product development laughing and, you know, like pointing at me and laughing. And then they'd all start laughing and then I'd be laughing, but they were really just laughing at me. So I was laughing at myself as well that like this was an audacious idea or we could never get it done in time or the cost was exorbitant or, you know, I talked funny, whatever it was that they were laughing about. It was not a positive affirmation through that process. I was able to weed out a lot of non targets and then I narrowed it down to about 12 to 15 targets. And I actually found our manufacturer at this Aquatech convention. And one of the things that I learned is that what Silicon Valley kind of was slash is to tech and innovation is very much what Korea was and is to water innovation. So if you look at a lot of the development that's happened in water purification, water technology, water manufacturing, a lot of it is done in Korea. And I've done manufacturing before in Korea and I had some great experiences, extremely reliable, relentless focus on quality, sometimes painfully slow because it's so methodical. But I ended up narrowing it down to two suppliers in China, about four or five different suppliers in Korea. And through all of that effort of kind of online searching, a lot of phone calls, a lot of recon, I talked to, you know, I'd call up the head of operations for a major water company and I would just pick their brain. I'd say, hey, look, this is what I'm trying to do. I need some advice. Are you willing to give it to me? And I would just cultivate from wherever, whatever sources that I could information around water technology, water manufacturing and the companies that would do that. And from there, I narrowed it down to a great partner that we've been working with for over six years group of 60, 70 people. They do all their own CAD development. We own all of our IP. We've been a longstanding partner with them. They've done a fantastic job and we'll end up getting secondary and tertiary manufacturers as we start to grow and scale domestically as well as internationally. But that was the process that we used. I mean, a lot of it was just figuring it out. And I think this is one of these things that when I bring people into the company, I think one of the dangers in scaling companies is that there's an ethos within the company that gets potentially lost. And that ethos is figuring difficult out by just like deductive reasoning, critical thinking, and being an absolute relentless pit bull to getting the source of information and kind of weaving through all of the stuff to get to your pathway. A lot of times, like just humans, we want things to be easy. Like we want someone to dish it up and say, Hey, this is what you need to do. And this is why when you go back to Facebook after this podcast, you're going to see, you know, the Inc. magazine. I like Inc., but you're going to see like, here are the 10 things you need to do to be successful. Here are the three things you need to look for when you hire. Here are the five things that you need to do to like get an exit. But the reality is a lot of times there aren't just three, five or 10 things. A lot of it is you don't know what the things are and you've got to really splice everything apart and then put it back together. And a lot of that just comes through really hard grinding. And I think that was one of the things that came out of manufacturing. I mean, it wasn't there was luck. There was a huge degree of luck in going to that Aquatech convention, but also it required a lot of critical thinking. I mean, I had, I'll give you an example of that. I had probably a 10 page kind of RFP request for a proposal, but I also had like a two to three page operating document of what we wanted in a manufacturer. And so it was privately held 50 to 80 people, wanted them to do all their own internal R&D. I wanted them to have 10 plus years in the water experience. I wanted them only doing water. In fact, I remember I had a note in one of my kind of guidance documents was I didn't want them manufacturing anything that would be contrary to our mission, like plastic utensils. 
And I remember one of the finalist manufacturers that I went to go visit in China, which obviously we did not end up selecting. I saw a bunch of boxes lined up in pallets that were getting ready to be shipped. And it didn't look like it was water purification equipment. And so I kind of just wandered over outside of the guidance from being escorted around. I kind of wandered to a point which they couldn't find me. And I, op- I kind of like peeked through one of the boxes and I literally saw plastic forks that they had manufactured, which I did not know that they'd manufactured. And I kicked that manufacturer out exactly after that moment as a result of that. But that came from having a, a really defined operating guidance of what I'm looking for and what was going to be important for the business to be able to scale. Do you recommend all founders of companies to have that operating guidance list? And what would be some suggestions to go about creating that for your company? There are so many unknowns in the startup world that what I typically like to do is I try to isolate variables, right? And so I'm really comfortable with dealing with variables for which there's no known answer. I like it. I actually find it way more interesting and it's part of the challenge and that's the job. I also do not like trying to figure things out that other people previously have already figured out because I think it's a waste of time. And so one of the things that I would advise entrepreneurs to do is sounds perhaps a little trite and Pollyanna-ish, but I would start with the operating vision and mission of the company. I mean, I would start with fundamental principles around, okay, if you're developing an RFP, ultimately, what is it that aligns around the mission and the vision of your company? And then I would secondarily look at what are some of the behaviors and attributes that you believe based on where you are in this moment that are going to be important to your success, right? And so for us, just as an example, kind of pulling it back is um, having someone that a 10 to 20 years plus of expertise in water manufacturing or water production of water equipment was really important because I wanted them to be able to isolate variables for us and have experiences that could have been learned lessons over a period of time. The third is to put in place as best you can kind of feature and product attributes in a very clear and concise way. So when I was delivering stuff to manufacturers, I was delivering to them Here's the problem in the market. Here's what we're solving for. Here's the use case of this product. And then all of the features and specs that were desired as part of that. So I guess I'd really go back to like vision, mission of the company, fundamentals, operating principles, some of the behaviors, and then kind of feature specs, use cases, intended use applications of that. And then you revise as you go. I mean, I think this is one of these challenging things about running a company is that And in fact, I was thinking about on the way here, you know, life just doesn't work for any of us the way that we expect it to. And that's probably a good thing in most cases, even though, you know, when you like to control things and you like things to turn out the way you want them to turn out, it doesn't always feel like that's the case. But I really fundamentally believe that, you know, one of the things that you have to do is you have to, you have to be fluid with the learnings that happen in the marketplace. And so what I would say to a founder is you can't go and outsource really critical functions that are strategically important to the company before you go and do them yourself. An example of that would be manufacturing. I'll still go today. We're in the process of looking at alternative manufacturers for secondary products that we're in the process of developing. I've got my head of operations that just took three trips to Asia in the last 12 weeks to source manufacturers, but I'm going to go visit the top two to three myself and make sure that, you know, I'm pressing flesh and testing it out and, you know, validating what they believe to be true. Same goes for sales. I think a lot of people that our founding CEOs tend to think, oh, like, I'm just going to go hire somebody and they're going to go sell it. Yeah. And maybe they will, but you might also get a false negative. You might be getting uh, potentially a bit of a false positive, but usually more often than not, you're going to get a false negative. And so I think the key is develop the template, but then you got to go battle test that template 
And the only way that you can really battle test that template is by getting out into the market and having the experience and hearing it firsthand, hearing it from manufacturers, hearing it from people that have failed at it, hearing it from people that have been successful at it, hearing it from customers so that you can make real-time adjustments. Because in this market, like the thing that we bring to the table is the ability to operate with speed. But speed is kind of part and parcel to having know-how, knowledge, market assessments, and kind of validation around all of those things. Now, it sounds like you've done an amazing amount of work with your company. Can you talk a little bit about the real story of what some of the sacrifices a person might have to make to be a founder of a company? I mean, most of us just hear these tech startups, these founders making millions, and that's it. We don't hear the whole story. We do not. You know, when I talk to entrepreneurs, I'll kind of answer this in two different ways. I have a general perspective, but then I also have an answer that I, I give when entrepreneurs call me and they say, hey, I'm thinking about doing X, Y, and Z, and should I do this? I try to be really careful to never discourage the idea at all. I might give them some things to think about. I think people are very often consumers and people are just very quick to say what's a good and a bad idea. And in many cases, we don't know about what is a good and a bad idea. I mean, I think probably 90% of innovative ideas were probably have been seen as a bad idea by the majority. So I think battle testing ideas and providing people critical feedback on here's what I think is good about this idea. Here's some of your risks or challenges with this idea that you should think about is a really healthy way of trying to help move someone along critical thinking without crushing it. Because, you know, really, what do I know about their particular idea and the research that they've done? I will, however, be pretty vocal with them about what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, I try to offer a healthy enough dose of encouragement that should they desire to do it, they probably can do it and attempt it. But the reality is that for 90 some percent, you know, it's probably 95, 97% of entrepreneurs, they don't make it. And these are all the stories that you don't hear about on Facebook. I mean, you hear about all the great outcomes and all the parachutes or the liquidity events or the IPO that once the founder gets unlocked from an IPO, got tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. The reality is that that just doesn't happen. That is the reality in the majority of cases. And the other dose of reality is that you're going to be putting a huge portion of your life on hold. I mean, I look at my own personal life. Actually, I mean, that's probably one of the things that's most negligent in kind of the whole like spectrum of myself is I have tripled down my focus on my two daughters, Royce and Zoe, that are teenagers. One's a freshman and the other is a junior in high school. And then I've super focused on the company, you know, and being there for the company and operating at my highest capacity as best I can. Certainly doesn't mean I'm flawless. I've made many mistakes along the way, but my intention right now is all efforts focused on a bit of personal development, my daughters and work. And that leaves very, very little time for other things. This idea of like, you can have it all is total. I mean, that just does not like, that sounds great in an article that gets posted on Facebook to drive clicks, but that just is not real life. Real life is you have to make very definitive tough, tough decisions of what you are willing to sacrifice to go after what it is that you want. That might be that bigger thing. And what people don't see when, I mean, it's funny people sometimes, I mean, they see my social media, they see Rich Rasgatis in social media and like, I'm not a celebrity in the Valley, but people see Rich Rasgatis in social media that are in my network. And they say, you guys are blowing up and this must be fantastic. And you're traveling all over the place. Well, you know, I'm not, what I'm not doing is I'm not posting pictures of me inside a manufacturer at 3 a.m. 
after I've been up for like 21 hours or, you know, what I, what I'm not doing is posting Instagram stories of pulling all nighters to work on a pitch deck or an investor follow-up piece. Or, you know, what I'm not doing is posting pictures where you're alone on a Friday night because you don't really, you haven't developed that many personal relationships or you've forsaken, unfortunately, a lot of your personal friendships because you've had to make tough decisions. And uh, so you just end up working on Friday night as well, even though there's plenty of work to always be done. There's a whole amount of not only sacrifice, but also loneliness that comes with being an entrepreneur. And I think what ends up being a pretty considerable amount of grit, because you're going to get the kicked out of you along the way. And it's not the ways that you expect. You'll get all the expected ways, but you're also going to get a healthy dose of unanticipated, unexpected kicks. And it's really difficult. And that's why I think, you know, my counsel to people that are looking into going into entrepreneurship is it's not don't do it, but it's do it, but make sure you really know what you're signing up for. And if, for example, you're married, make sure that your partner knows what you're signing up for and don't do it if you can't get buy-in along what that looks like. Because if you don't get that buy-in or they kind of think they're in, but they're not really in on it, it's probably not going to go well. I mean, I think one of the issues that we all have as entrepreneurs is we're optimists. I mean, I, I try to have a healthy dose of pragmatism and reality and, and think through worst case scenarios. But the reality is, yeah, I think I can pull everything off. You know, I think I can pull off like doing X, Y, and Z and let's throw ABC in there. And I have to really guard against my optimism around what I think I can pull off versus, all right, like what can you really do? And what are the sacrifices you're going to have to make along the way? And for those people that are on that journey with you, are they also prepared to make it? Can you share a couple of stories maybe, or at least a story that impacted you of one of the companies that you invested in? I'll give one that I know business investing in. It's a company called Ginkgo Bioworks. It's a synthetic biology company in Boston. What they do is this. They apply... So there's a bunch of computer scientists from MIT. And it was started by... Among a few co-founders, it was the main co-founder. The main founder is Tom Knight. Tom was for a long time a principal investigator, researcher, and a sometime professor at MIT. And, and Tom's reputation precedes him. He, he has mentored and advised a lot of PhD students. In fact, I have an interesting story I'll tell about Tom in a second if I have time. But Tom is one of these big brand names that doesn't matter what Tom does, right? Whatever he does, it's going to be really groundbreaking. I didn't really know Tom well. I was acquainted with Tom, but one of my ex-co-founders, my first company, knows Tom really well. So in 2014, my friend calls me up and says, Hey, you know, I'm thinking of investing in Tom's new thing. It's in biology. I'm like, what's Tom doing in biology? He's like, Oh no, no. Tom has spent the last 10 years. You know, he was bored by computer science and electrical engineering. He spent the last 10 years taking all the classes in chemistry and biology at MIT and Harvard. And now he basically is on a mission to, to basically solve, you know, how do you hack biology? Why can't, you do genetic engineering the way you build software. So he did a lot of seminal work in terms of some of the mechanics of large-scale genetic, large-scale mechanics of how do you not just, not just genetically engineer a yeast cell, for example. Let's say you genetically engineer a yeast cell to produce rose oil. Okay, great. How do you then produce a huge quantity of rose oil, right? So that it can be economically viable. So when he started, well, the company has been around for five years, survived on DOD funding, and then they were attracted to become the first biotech company in Y Combinator, 2003, 2004. And then they were raising the first round. Talked to my friend. I'm like, 
if Tom is doing it, I'm in. It doesn't really matter what it is. I don't know what synthetic biology is, but I'm in. In the last, what, six, seven years, they've grown to become a behemoth. They are, uh, at one point, I'm not sure if it still is, it was the highest valued private company in Massachusetts. I think the last round put them, pegged them at about $5 billion in valuation. Now, of course, my check size is tiny. I wish it was not so tiny in hindsight. Now, you'd mentioned MIT there. You have a little bit of connection as well with MIT with the boot camps. Can you share what you've done and some of the takeaways that our listeners could learn from those boot camps that you held? My last company after going public, uh, you know, 014, I took a little bit of time off. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I just had my first child and the deal with my wife was I can't do any startups for the next N number of years until like a kid's a little bit older, right? So no more like 18 hour days. So I said, great. Okay. You know, I'll, I'll advise, I'll do some angel investing. And I, I was still hooked into uh, deeply involved in the MIT community. I was mentoring companies uh, and the like, and I got pulled into someone in, uh, had donated money to start this entrepreneurial center at MIT a number of years before. And so they have this building where it was this cross interdisciplinary department, if you will, about entrepreneurship. And they were doing a lot of seminars, a lot of classes, not full, full credit classes, but these were sort of like, you know, boot camps here and there. Professor Bill Ouellette, who was a professor at Sloan School, was the one who was doing a lot of these boot camps in conjunction with a number of folks out of the MIT's Office of Digital Learning. I got roped in to mentor and to teach a couple of the classes. And they started off basically saying, hey, can we do a, a week-long, two-week-long boot camp as the capstone in-person class, the M- MIT online learning classes? So MIT and Harvard has this online learning class for the last 10 years called edX, for example. So in edX, every season, I think there's about 10,000 plus 10,000 folks take those online classes. So what they wanted to do was at the end of the two to three month online class, you allow people to apply for an in-person class for a week and you have to pay, right? Uh, and half of them, you know, you apply for scholarships. The other half, you have to pay. And then you show up at MIT, you know, we run you through a week long worth of how do you start a company? How do you finance a company? How do you recruit? How do you grow? How do you think about business models and things like that? This is very much startup frameworks 101. They started that in 2012, 2013, when I started helping out. It was 2014, 2015, the like. So uh, did it in Boston, and then they started replicating it in a few other countries. And they started doing it in Korea, in Australia, in Turkey, and the like. Uh, so I did it for a couple of years. It was fascinating. It's probably one of the best gigs I've ever had, just from uh, a learning perspective. I do remember this. Uh, there was uh, the last session I had, it was in Korea. And so they admit about 70 to 100 students from around the world to fly there. I remember this distinctly. There, were one, there was one guy from Syria, from Aleppo. I'm like, and this is before it got really bad. This was just the beginning, the rebel forces and then the Syrian government. So he could still leave. I remember having this conversation with him, right? He's like, I'm like, Wow. And I can't remember. He owned, I think he owned a number of cell phone repair shops at, in, in Aleppo. I was just asking him, wow, like how dangerous is it now? I keep you know, seeing things escalating, like, you know, like people accidentally get shelled, like groups of people will die. And he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, but what can I do? He's, I'm like, you're going back. And I was like, yeah, I've got family there. You know, I've got extended family there. Most people do. So you, 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 know, you just can't pack up and leave. And I've always since 
that year I've thought about him and thought about, you know, sort of his family and like how he has, they've done. Hopefully they've been safe all these years. Yeah. So you meet all these really interesting people for whom we have our brand of entrepreneurship in the US, right? Very tech centric, very, you know, as you talk to folks from other parts of the world, you know, their brand of entrepreneurship could be very different. Like here is all VC funded tech. Other places in the world and equally as valid. I mean, it could be, you know, someone might own a fleet of taxis and do very well. And it's a different form of entrepreneurship and you know, not innovation per se, as we understand it, but, but innovation nonetheless. That, I enjoyed that a lot. That was really cool. I really liked the global perspective of that program. So, so yeah, so I was doing that until last couple of years until I started uh, my uh, recent company. With all your time thinking about all these technologies and your experience. What lessons have you learned in your business career from failing or trying something new? I have failed more times than I care to talk about, <laughs> just like most people. My feeling is that if you try enough things and they're crazy enough ideas, you're going to fail. If you, do, if you never take any risks, you will probably never fail, but you'll also never achieve anything that's a breakthrough. In my life, I've had companies fail, totally fail, and I look back on them, and now that I look back on them, it has taught me more about helping entrepreneurs than my companies that have wildly succeeded. So my successes, they're great. But when I look at my failures, I was really humbled. You know, I believed in the idea. I thought it was the right thing. I kept pushing on it. And you know what? Most entrepreneurs, including myself, when I failed, I didn't fail uh, because I gave up because I'm the type of person who gives up. I actually failed because I refused to give up in a wrong way. There are two ways to fail. So one way is to say right away when something isn't working, when the data is there, oh, this isn't working. I'm just going to go on and do the next thing. And you just cut your losses and move on. The other way is to say to yourself, I cannot fail no matter what I'm going to make this work. And sometimes when you say that, you end up practicing what we call self-delusion, right? You end up convincing yourself that, you know, we all filter data. We all have biases. So you end up not looking at the real data and understanding that, no, this is not something you can change. So what I learned through failing was you should not continue with a project ever because of your ego, because you feel like it would reflect badly on you if you failed. You should only continue on a project when the data supports you to continue on it. If you find out that this product is not taking off, that customers don't, the fundamental core value you are delivering to your customer, they don't really care about. At that moment, you figure that out, you should kill the product. No matter how many changes you make, if you usually, usually in a startup, you can never change the core value you're offering the customer. You have to start over. So that is one of the things I learned. I developed many games. Some of the games were like big hits, some were failures. You know, if that core game mechanics, which is the value you're offering the customer, aren't working, you know, no matter how many superficial things you change, that game is dead. It will never go anywhere. With any product, it doesn't matter if you're making a gadget for people's homes or, you know, a software application, whatever it is, that same thing holds true. The other thing I have learned by failing is that it's okay to fail. And that when you fail, you don't be, spend time beating yourself up. First of all, be realistic. Say, I failed, admit it. It's like going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm an alcoholic. You have to say, I'm a failure. I totally screwed this up. Then you have to analyze what you did wrong so, and say, next time, I'm not going to do these things again, right? I'm going to change how I do them. Whether it was hiring the right employee and sticking with them too long because you 
didn't want to hurt their feelings and fire them and they weren't very good, or whether it's pursuing an idea to an extreme, even when there's no data to back it up, whatever it was, or spending too much money on something that didn't matter, all those things you need to list out. And then you need to move on. You cannot sit there and say, I had a choice. So my first startup was very successful, very successful. My second startup failed. And after my second startup, I could have given up. I could have said to myself, and I did say to myself originally, I should just never do a startup again. It was too painful. It was like too brutal. I should never do this again. If I had done that after my failure, then I would have never achieved what I've achieved now. It would have been a shame. And I would always felt like a failure because I would basically have branded myself as a failure. The other thing you need to understand in that I've learned is that everybody has different talents. Like some people are really good at organizing other people. Some people are really good at leading other people. Other people are really good at solving hard problems. You know, some people are really good at sales, but nothing else. They're like an individual seller. You need to know what your skills are and amplify those. Put your energy into those. And you need to partner with people with other skill sets who have what you lack. And if you can't do that, you will not succeed. So part of being successful is strictly knowing what you're good at. And there are some people out there who cannot handle being an entrepreneur at all. They should not be an entrepreneur. They would make a brilliant professor or a brilliant author, but they should never run a company. And they need to learn that about themselves. So part of failing is a lot of times it teaches you that. You thought you wanted to be this, but actually your real talents lie elsewhere. And if you just focused on those, you could be incredibly successful. So that is part of the whole process, I think, of of anything in life, learning anything, doing anything. Speaking of achievements, your book, Make Elephants Fly, is a huge success. What's one key takeaway from that book that you'd like to share? I came up with the title, Make Elephants Fly, because of this key thing about the book. So the key thing is the elephant is your big idea. It's that dream you have, but it's so big, you feel like it's impossible to get it off the ground. Like you'll never make an elephant fly. But that's the goal of an entrepreneur. The goal is to make that elephant fly. So the book, actually the best thing about the book is that it takes you step by step through a lot of case studies, many who have been successful, but others who have failed and shows you exactly what they did right and what they did wrong. And the biggest idea, and there are many ideas in this because it's never one thing. It's a lot of different things. But the biggest idea in Make Elephant Fly is that you should treat all of your endeavors, whether they're your job in a company, whether it's being an entrepreneur, whether it's your family or home life, you should treat all of it as experiments, as experiments, a learning process. Like, how do you form a good relationship with somebody you love when you're fighting all the time? You can't just keep repeating the same problems, right? You're just going to continue fighting. You need to devise with that partner experiments that you could do, like if we communicate in a different way. So sometimes, like with my wife, we made a rule, right? Which worked really well. We found out that we only really were fighting late at night. Like when we were exhausted, right before we went to bed, we would both have an idea and we would start arguing about it. So we made a rule past 9 p.m., no serious discussion. None. Fighting evaporated, right? No arguments, right? Because we weren't tired and we talk about it in the morning when we're fresh. So even if you feel compelled, don't do it. In a company, it's the same way. When you're running a company, whether it's managing, the book goes into managing employees, coming up with ideas, innovating on products, all these different things, how you structure those things, you should take 
an approach that I don't know what to do, but I'm going to try many different things and we're going to figure out what works best, especially when you're pushing the limits, when you're innovating. That's really interesting. I mean, because thinking about the funnel and that when I've talked to people in the past, they go, okay, let's break down the demographics of this person. What's their favorite hobby? What's their book? How long they spend on social media, their age, all this stuff. They don't really say, okay, who have you connected with in the past that has a network that you can reach out to and maybe invite all of them out for dinner or online painting through Zoom? A shout out yeah. to Michael at Insperity who invited me and that was a lot of fun and we all bonded and I'm going to feel like yes. I owe that guy forever. On air today, the day we're speaking, I was participating in a summit I was telling you about. The host was talking to someone named Heather Moyes, who in Canada is a, well, she's a world-class athlete. She's won two gold medals. I mean, she's just an amazing public speaker. Because I've been participating in a summit, I wasn't on air at that moment. But the other host noticed, I commented, basically. Heather said something about, just ignore the naysayers. So Tim being Tim goes into Facebook and comments, screw the naysayers, because that's my brand, eh? And then Corey, the co-host, comes on and he says, Heather, I want to tell you that I just got a comment here. It said, screw the naysayers. You used the word naysayers three times. I don't have to look at who it is because I know it's Tim Allison and you've got to go on his, his show. I would have a very hard time getting straight to somebody like that. She's in huge demand and charges really big fees. But there she is on air saying, Tim, hit me up. I can't wait. And it happens because of the things you're talking about. You build relationships. Seth Godin came on my show, episode 100 of Screw the Naysayers. Seems like a long time ago. It was just a little over a year ago. I know for sure that journey to get Seth started with my first guest, because my first guest was a guy named Don Wettrick. And I knew even then that Seth had huge respect for the work that Don was doing in trying to change and radically change the education system for high school kids and to promote entrepreneurship and coding and building of technology-based businesses. It's not a coincidence that after I earned some other, earned the right to make the ask, that when I was able to reach back and say, hey, Don, has been, I know that you've been on Don's show. Don's been on, was my first guest. He did me a big solid. These are the way you build networks because it's crazy the people I'm talking to from Nova Scotia. And I was thinking about it the other day, Sean, I'm not lying. I only left my home village for business twice in the last two and a half years. The first time last, October, I went to the city of Toronto to accept an award, a, a Women of Inspiration uh, conference for the work I've done with my podcast in advancing uh, women gender equity. And the second time was in November. I went down to Cambridge because I was invited to speak on a stage at Harvard, and I thought I might want to do that. All of the other people, every other relationship that I've made, I've done from this studio I'm looking at right now is nothing but forest and trees and blue sky in, in a village of about 300 people. That has changed in sales because we can make human connections without always being there in person. If you really look at successful companies, it always comes back to their ability to, to build their network. The return on relationship I heard the other day, I hadn't heard that phrase before, but ROR, return on relationships. And I thought, that's a pretty interesting way of looking at it because I can trace just about everything good that's happened in my business back to, I know where relationships came from. And Sean introduced me to so-and-so, introduced me to so-and-so and those kind of things. 
Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. 